Welcome to What Happened to You, the podcast that interviews footballers of the past today about their interviews from the past. Don't worry, it will all make sense when you listen. On this episode, supported by the set pieces, we talk to former Port Vale, Leicester City, Crystal Palace, Sheffield Wednesday and Charlton Athletic striker Mark Bright about his spotlight on interview from Shoot in 1988-89 and his private life of profile from Match in 1990. You can find the original interviews on our Twitter feed at WHTYPod and on our dedicated channel over at The Set Pieces, www.thesetpieces.com. Full name? Mark Abraham Bright. Birthplace and date? Um, birthplace Stoke on Trent, sixth of June. And your height? Um, one meter eighty-five, I think. Uh, and, and for the first time in the series, we don't get to ask our guests whether they still weigh what they did back when these interviews were done, because we never get to find out in either of your interviews. Were you hiding something? Yeah, the um, my weight was ninety kilo, ninety-one kilo, kilos, I think. Mm. My finishing weight, I'm sure it was. But Charlton, I think that's what Keith Peacock used to have a book. He used to write you, you weight in like every Monday or something like that. I think it was 91 kilos, but now I'm uh, 100, 103, I think. Welcome to the podcast, Mark. It's brilliant to have you on. How's life going during all this lockdown stuff? Well, we just started, aren't we? It was just day one. Mm. So um, it's the same for everybody. You've got to crack on, got to try and get busy. Um, lots of these things to do. You can do three a day uh, the, the requests you get on social media facebook or instagram everybody's after interviews everyone's after content it's a good thing i think to, to share it to so people can click you can go online and find hundreds of interviews with hundreds of players hundreds of ex-players um, just depends what you're looking for i think if it just entertains people or you learn something from it then it's all it's all good so um yeah there's I've done quite a few. Well, we appreciate you coming on to this one as well. Now, um, I don't want to get too heavy so early in the podcast, but in these old shoot interviews, I always just ask you what your childhood influence, uh, who they, they were, and uh, whether it was a school teacher or something like that. But um, it's conspicuous by its absence here, and um, that may have been intentional. But your, in your autobiography, which was released last year, you opened up a lot about the, the difficulties that you had growing up in care with your brother. Now, assuming a lot of what you revealed in the book wasn't public knowledge, did you find that you, you got very nervous about revealing so much personal stuff? Yeah. Yeah, because um, you're just wondering how you, you've just kept it quiet for so long. And I'm in my 50s now, so you just come to a point where, you know, I wanted to write the book for my son, really, because... I think it's very difficult for a parent to sit there and talk to your son or your daughter about your journey where how far, I mean you know they'll start yawning and <laughs> start nodding off I think so the timing was right for me to talk about um, my career and my past and um, luckily I, I chose a ghostwriter who's known me for over 30 years so um, we decided if it's another football book with results and funny stories of getting drunk and doing this that and the other on tour everybody will just put it in a certain category but you know what would make it a little bit different was let's let's talk about the journey as a whole and obviously it's, a, it's an interesting story 
outside of football. So it was um, cathartic. It um, brings that obviously you 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 delve into into situations or the, the past that you haven't thought of or delved into. 20, 30 years, imagine not talking about something for that long and then all of a sudden you start talking about it. So it made, made me personally very emotional and, um, and, and probably was probably a weight lifted off my shoulders when I spoke about it. And finally, when the draft came through the book, you read it and you realise this is you talking, which is really strange. And um, I think you get through it by just looking for things that are not quite correct in the book. So, um, yeah, it was... was was strange and then doing the the, the 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 most difficult thing I think was doing all the interviews it's very draining it's very tiring um you've got to be up and at it straight away early in the morning doing early morning breakfast I mean I'm, I was grateful to everybody because I just I just sort of exhausted the outlets I mean Dan Walker and Louise mentioned think on um, on, on BBC were excellent with me um Susanna Reid on 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 uh, Good Morning Britain and Ben Shepherd were 12 minutes they gave me talk about a book on breakfast. I mean, it was, it was un unbelievable. Um, Nihal and Radio 5 Live was supreme in terms of his interviewing techniques. Ian Dale on his podcast. There was, there was just so many. I think I did around 40 interviews over, over like a two-week period, and it was just draining. But then obviously you're talking about the book, and people read sections of the book and interview you. And... Um, and yeah, it all comes flooding out. And then, and from it as well, it was a, it was a great one. I was, I was talking to Nihal on, on five. And it was like the second day, I think, or the first day of my publicity. And um, he just did this wonderful interview. And, you know, um, God, maybe an hour. Might be a bit longer, I'm not sure. And um, the school teacher who's in the book, Mr. Arco, his daughter was driving. She was listening to the radio, me talking about her dad. And she emailed the, the football club they passed on the email to me and I, I, I got back to her and she sent me a couple of pictures of her dad. I didn't have the pictures to put in the book because her dad was quite influential and played a big part in my, um, in my background about, well, it was a certain section. So, yeah, so it was, it's, um, it's, it's really interesting. I, only, I said I only want to do one book. I want to do it well and I want to do it right. So, you know, you put a lot into it. It's, it's, everybody does a book. You put so much into it. And then you just hope that people like it. And just if one person stops you or messages you and says, I've read your bookmark, I think it's really good, it, it makes it all worthwhile mm. because it is such a tough thing to do, to yeah. open up. If you've had a great upbringing, you know, I don't know about your own background, if your parents have been there for you and they've supported you at school and then they've supported you at college and then they've supported you for uni and then they've helped you to get a house or get, you know, get married, these are all things that you would say are normal things that this is what should happen. If you have siblings, if you, if you have kids, sorry. Um, when those things don't happen or those things don't fall into place and somebody's moved from one place to another, to another, to another fostered in care, out of care. It's, um, it, it's, it's not easy. And I can, I know why people fall by the wayside. I know how people will struggle in life because, you know, I know I, I have to have to be lucky. And I, I feel very fortunate and lucky to be fostered by the, the foster parents we had and to the outcome to be how it is that, you know, that you come out all well balanced and um, you, have, you, you don't have anger issues and, you know, and you, you don't blame everybody and point a finger. You have to accept responsibility and make the best of what you've got. Initially, I believe you didn't actually turn pro 
uh, at Port Vale and you, you continue to work in a, in a factory job. But then along came Leicester City with, a, with the brilliant transfer fee, I believe, of £33,333. Um, I suppose that probably felt like your ship had just suddenly come in, did it? No, well, the start, I was at Port Vale. I didn't get taken on as an apprentice back then. I left Port Vale, went to get a job and uh, worked in a hydraulics, Staffordshire Hydraulics Engineering Factory um, and played part-time for Leak Town. So I had two years, just over two years playing part-time for Leak Town, back to, to about 18. And then Port Vale invited me back to play in the reserves because I was scoring quite, quite a few goals. So I played one year in the reserves for Port Vale, I think that's 19. And then I turned pro. The, the manager gave me a one-year contract. I just qualified in hydraulic engineering, got my city and girls qualification. So I went up to, from, to about £130 a week or something like that. And then John McGrath offered me a contract in football and I went down to 90 to get back into football. So um, to pay cut to go to, to play professional football. And then I had one year as a professional at Port Vale um, where I scored 10 in 25 games, something like that. And Leicester came for me at the end of that season. So I only had one season as a professional with Port Vale, which was my childhood club. I lived around the corner. Um, so from there, obviously, when, you, when I moved to Leicester, that's when you kind of, you've been bought. Um, it was £100,000 divided into three payments. As you quite rightly said, it was 33,000, then another 33, and then another. But they never got to the second one because that came after 30 games or something. So I was a few short at Leicester. And they said they're, then, they're not going to play me. They're not paying Port Vale those extra two payments because they didn't think I'd, I, I was going to be a, a, a first division, as you say, Premier League player then. So um, off I went to, to, to Palace. Yeah. Well, in, in the first of these two interviews, they've asked you the question, uh, why didn't things work out for you at Leicester City? To which you said, quite bluntly, two seasons, uh, two reasons, really. Gary Lineker and Alan Smith. Um, that's pretty tough to be, behind, to be behind them in the pecking order. Yeah, but, but um, Gary was brilliant. Still is. Looks still tight. Smudger, I speak to every now and again. Um, Alan Smith came from Alva Church, which was a non-league team around the Midlands. And um, he, uh, he, he, he hit the ground running. He was, he was doing well. He'd been there a year or so. Gary was Gary. He was the top player in the team. Um, it's, not, it's not quite right for me to say the, the reason I didn't do well there is because of those two. I, I did play in my preferred position, which was down the middle, when Gary left after the first year. And uh, so I played alongside Smudger. It's just that I didn't produce the goals. That's basically what it was. I didn't produce the goals. The harder I worked, the worse it became. Uh, I ended up getting abuse and stick by the home fans. Um, and it made me nervous. I was 21, 22, 23. And um, yeah, it made me, ner- made me slightly nervous and edgy. So mm. every time I gave the ball away, everyone made a new in noise. And, oh, God, like, and then when other people did it, they didn't. So it was just one of those things. It's just one of those things. So basically, you know, you, you, you either you crack it or you don't at a club. That's why players move on, because what doesn't suit you at one club suits you at another. 
Well, um, Steve Koppel came in for you and took you to Crystal Palace in late 1986 as he was trying to build a side that could either fulfil the promise of the famous Team of the 80s tag or finally shake it off and make their own mark. And in your first full season, 87-88, Palace just missed out on promotion from the second division to the Mm. first. But the consolation was you won the Golden Boot, scoring 25 league goals. And in the spotlight on interview, there you are proudly showing off said Golden Boot. Uh, and you've picked out an alleged 25-yard that you scored against Barnsley as the pick of the bunch, although you have admitted it may not have been quite as far out as 25 yards. Do you remember the goal still? Yeah, of course. And the chairman from Barnsley always used to say to me when we saw each other, you scored the finest goal I've ever seen scored at that stadium. And, um, and I said, Nobody's, no one remembers it. And it's only me and you remember it. And he always used to say when we used to go up, when I used to obviously... Um, I'm an ambassador for Palace as well. I work at the club and I'd sit next to Steve Parrish and we'd go to Barnsley and like, I suppose he'd roll his eyes and go, oh God, got to sit and listen to you scoring this worldie from 30 yards or so you say again. So I used to say to him, I mean, I, I can't remember, I can't understand how no one else can remember it. We played away, we played away at Barnsley. We it was coming towards the end of the game. I think we'd had a man sent off and I was running down the touchline by the dugout and everyone said, go in the corner, go in the corner. And um, I started to run towards the corner and then I came inside. Then I came inside again and I just realised there's too many defenders. I'll try and hit it sort of over the back of the goal and waste a bit of time. And I hit it with my left foot and it went in the top corner. And um, it was one of those bewilderment things. Like, I'd, I'd probably done it once at school on the playground at lunchtime before. It was one of those goals that just flew in. So I always say that's the um, best goal I've scored. Of course, neither we or these interviews could avoid mentioning your mate Ian Wright and the partnership you had together, which is probably the yardstick all Crystal Palace strikers are measured by even today. Um, did you hit it off straight away with Ian, both on and off the field? Um, no, uh, no, because well, we were all single and young then. So there was Andy, there was Andy Gray, and Tony Finnegan, and Wrighty and me, and that's like the quartet we used to kind of hang out together. So we didn't score very many goals. I went there in November. From November to the end of the season, I think I scored seven. I think Wrighty scored eight. And we just said, that's not good enough. If we think we're elite players, we think we can play in the first division, which is now the Premier League, we've got to score more. So we just started the, the groundwork of, of working harder and, and um, trying to get our partnership together, working on the training ground. Ian Evans was the coach. He did a bit. Wally Downs came in. He did a bit. Stan Turner did a bit. Um, Ian Brantford did a bit. Everybody added a little bit to what we had. Why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? And um, and then you have to perfect it. And then when we got on the pitch, there was just certain things that he knew I was going to do and I knew he was going to do. And he would sit up to the far post to me and I would just slide it into the, into the six-yard box for him to slide on and tap in. It was just one of those things. It um, A lot of hard work went on behind the scenes, but, you know, on, on the on the on the, the big the big scene on the, on the on the pitch on the Saturday, that's where it all came out, and everybody was like, "Wow, it's telepathic and everything." But there was just a lot of hard work went into it. You have to remember that he he scored he scored over a hundred goals, and I scored over a hundred goals. Like in in I think right, it was five seasons, and I was six, something like that. There was only a few goals between us, but we averaged we averaged something like nineteen goals a season each for six, for six seasons and five seasons which is um, now incredible. Imagine if, if, if you said, we're going we're gonna to buy two strikers and they're both going to score 
20 goals a season for the next five seasons, everyone would say, unbelievable, delighted. Mm. But at that stage, there they used to be great partnerships around Kenny Dalglish and Rush, um, Sharp and Gray, uh, um, Teddy Schengen and Cascarino, Cotty McAvenny. They just You could go to any club and there would be a pairing. And both, pair, both, both of the pair players scored goals. That's what you, you had to do or you're out. Mm. You know, um, Kerry Dixon and Speedy at Chelsea. It was just every club, if you mention a club, you'll mention the, the pair used to score goals. So, yeah. Okay, we'll come back to the football stuff shortly. So let's move on to some of the other stuff from this private life of interview in Match Magazine. And first up, what's your favourite TV programme? And your answer was anything to do with wildlife. And to illustrate the point, yeah. Match included a photo of a couple of seals in there next to yours. Um, are you still enjoying the old wildlife stuff? I think everybody does. I think, you know, Blue Planet and all these things. So David Attenborough is like amazing, the, the, you know, the, 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 the era he's spanned and the young ones following on Instagram now and everything. And you, you can't say you, you, you can't watch a, a wildlife program and not be fascinated by it because as, they've, as the years have progressed, the technology's got better. The, um, the way they film has just increased. The, 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 you know, the, 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 the high definition now makes it all superb. The slow motion, the following whales in the sea and drones in the sky and following eagles and things like that. I mean, they're just, it gives you a better insight. And I think that just, I still love watching those wildlife programs. Yeah. And music now, and you've listed your favourite artists as Michael Jackson, Prince, and Luther yeah. Vandross. And that's only just dawned on me that incredibly none of them, sadly, are with us any longer. I know. I know. Obviously, I saw Prince a couple of times and just was gobsmacked at the talent. Luther Vandross is still the only artist who I think sounds like the record when you're inside the auditorium. He walks on the stage and starts singing and it just sounds like you've put a record on. He's just, he, you know, amazing. I saw him a few times. Michael Jackson, I saw once. Um, met Janet Jackson because of um, David Jensen was at uh, Capital Radio at the time and he was interviewing Janet Jackson and he, and he invited Wrighty and me to go up and after shave on, get the hair done, get the jacket on. Yeah, we went up, met her, lasted about a minute. Um, David introduced us and he was like, you know, these two play, guys play soccer and she opened up by saying, oh my goodness, my boyfriend plays soccer. Boyfriend? <laughs> yeah, so uh, you end up meeting these people. But yeah, um, like going to concerts, still like going to concerts. Um, I think the best person I always said was the saw in concert was Barbara Streisand. It was just incredible. I mean, my friend got me some tickets and was sitting quite near the front and she was amazing. Um, Wembley Arena. Uh, amazing. I know it's an old, it's an old, she's old school that, but I mean, I've seen a lot of people. Um, saw the Stones, Bill Wyman left us tickets to go and see the Stones. Um, Phil Collins was excellent at, um, um, where was he, at Royal Albert Hall. I mean, just over the years, you just go and see, the best, the best, gig I went to though was um, um, the Prodigy they were doing Reading Festival I think and um, and obviously we're friends with um, one of the guys and he left me some backstage tickets and um, I played a pre-season friendly and then drove to Reading and thought wow it's really quiet why isn't there anybody here because everyone's in so when I got there got on pulled up at the in the the, uh, the car park 
ran to the backstage thing. They were just taken to the stage. And um, there's an area where family, friends and that can stand at the side and you can see out to like 50, 80, 100,000 people, whatever it was. And you, uh, it's the first time I've been to a concert and I, went, I watched them and they were unbelievable. Electric, mm. I mean, you know, Firestar, everything. They sang everything. It was, um, it was a great set. And um, that's when, obviously, I haven't been to festivals per se, you know, like Glastonbury, et cetera. That, that was the best thing I've seen. Mm. Uh, you mentioned uh, meeting Janet Jackson. Uh, one of the questions they asked you was, who would you like most like to be stranded with on a, a desert island? And this is a, <laughs> the great answer, this one. It's uh, Latoya Jackson. Latoya um, Jackson. <laughs> I, think, I think, honestly, I don't know how they would say that. It was like, I don't know whether he wrote it down wrong or what, but I mean, it would be Janet Jackson all day long. Um, yeah, I, mean, I mean, I don't know. I suppose there was a mistake there. I just... I just assumed that it would be Janet Jackson, Latoya Jackson as the older sister who was um, not, didn't really have any talent, really. She was just trading on the name. But no, I think Janet Jackson would have been the one. Yeah, I, w- I was wondering because at the time, round about then, Latoya Jackson was, was in a bit of a rebellious phase. She was kicking back against the Jackson family and she'd been in Playboy and she'd been in the newspapers, you know, slagging the family off. So I wonder if they just spiced up your interview a little bit by putting her in instead of Janet. Whipping the wrong one in. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's my suspicion. Too late once it's done, isn't it? It's too late. Exactly. I mean, everyone used to look forward to doing those kind of interviews, though, because, you know, you know all the places used to read them. Yeah. Well, the, the next one is about your first car, and I can't imagine any of the young stars of today uh, having to, <laughs> to buy an Austin Morris 1100 for 200 quid as their first uh, car. You know, they don't yeah. know they're born, these kids, eh? You know, that, that actually wasn't my first car. My first car was a Mini. And um, I hadn't passed my test and I kept it at the works. And one of the guys said to me, could he have a drive at it at lunchtime? And I said, well, you haven't passed your test. You haven't had any lessons. He said, no, I've had a few lessons. So I let him drive the car and he just panicked and, and ran into the skip. And if you know what a skip is, <laughs> it's one of those things they bring and take everything away from your house and garden. When you're mm. And it was a big metal and it just went straight in the middle of the bumper bar. And there was a big V in it. And um, it wrote the car off. So my first car was a, a Mini, but then it was just done. It was just done. You, you couldn't do anything. Um, so then I had to get another one, which is an Austin Morris, I think. And then the first, when I passed my test, I was taking all the lads out. And we were going around the local area, just driving around at night because, you know, not old enough to get into the pub. And I'm um, going up this steep hill. And um, sort of like, you know, you pull out the junction, put your foot down, and then change to second, and the gear stick came out. And um, everybody started shouting and laughing, and I was just screaming up the road in second gear with the gear stick in my hand, and like we had to pull over and go to a phone box and phone my brother. He just said, "Just take that little thing off and knock it back in like that." I mean, great laugh. Um, more bad luck with cars for this question. Um, you were asked, "Who would you most like to meet and why?" And I love this because you said the person responsible for leaving a dent in my car one night and why? Well. I thought that was obvious. So did you ever catch up with the perpetrator of, of the dent? And- no, no, just one of those things. Everybody experienced it. Um, someone runs in your car, drives off, doesn't say anything. But one time this woman um, knocked my wing mirror and it was like, um, you clicked in, it shattered and it was dangling out. And she left like a note under the windscreen saying, I am really sorry. I came too close to your car and knocked the wing mirror out. If you get in touch with me and tell me how much it is, I'll pay for it. 
And I was, wow, I mean, unbelievable. And um, my friend worked at the garage, who had the car off the garage. They, they changed it for me. They had a car that had been written off and took the one out of that and put the one in. And it was, it was like, it, it was electric. They plugged it in and it had oil in the back of the, uh, the mirror. And, and when it was cold, the oil used to heat up and make sure the, ring, the mirror never got frosty or anything. So they were quite expensive. And um, he said to me, you can have it. Don't worry, you can have it for nothing. So I contacted them and said, listen, I got the work mirror for nothing, so I'm not going to try and get any money out of you. But thanks for being so honest. Uh, back to 1919 Crystal Palace now. And, and two questions here point a couple of thing, uh, point the way to a couple of the big stories from that season. When you were asked what your favourite away ground was and why, you replied Anfield because it's a great stadium and atmosphere. And I'm not surprised it was a great atmosphere when you went there that season because Liverpool beat you 9-0. Oh, boy, that was a shocker. That was a shocker. I mean, um, we saw Southampton lose 9-0, was it last season? Yeah. Mm. And 8-0, might have been. I think I've got, but anyway, listen, it was one of those. I'd played there with Leicester and our old manager was Gordon Milne, who was the former Liverpool player. And Gary scored, I think it was Boxing Day, and we, we, I think we won 1-0, and Gary Lineker scored. And we came in afterwards, and the manager said, all right, quiet down, sit down, sit down. He said, right, listen, you might never come in and win again. So enjoy it. Um, get, get yourself showered. Let's get on the coach. Let's get away. And then, and then you're thinking, what's so big about that? When it, I mean, but in those days, you were lucky if you got a kick, never mind one. So it was... It was just the whole first-time experience for me going there as a player. I was on the bench. I didn't, I didn't start. I was on the bench. And, um, you know, the song, then the, the, the tradition, the, the holding up of scarves, everything. It was, it was different. It was still different. It, it's still good now. It is still good now because you have to maintain the tradition of what they do, you know, not playing songs and everything. Just they sing. Um, and I think secretly... Most people in my era who played when Liverpool were great are quite pleased at seeing them back again. I think it's nice that they can compete again with, you know, Chelsea and Man City, uh, United, Arsenal, whoever, Tottenham. They're back because when we grew up, they were the best team. They set the standard and we played against them at the best, beat us 9-0. Simple as that. Well... Palace battled back from that 9-0 at Anfield and uh, Liverpool then feature in the highlight of your career question, uh, which was the 4-3 extra time 1990 FA Cup semi-final win, which was an incredible game on an incredible day when the two semis were televised live on the BBC for the first time and they were both thrillers. Would it be going too far to yeah. say that that's the greatest game in Palace's history? Um, oh. I don't know, we've been to another cup final since 2016, but um, I think we had three really productive years. 89-90 got promotion, 1990, 89-90 got promotion, 1990 we got to the FA Cup final, and 1991 we came third in the league. So you could say promotion, FA Cup final, and finishing third, three consecutive seasons were huge for the Crystal Palace Football Club and the fan base and, and the players um, putting ourselves on the mat. Um, but yeah, the semi-final was a unique game because simply it was, there was two games kicking off, two semi-finals on the same day, both televised 
was live by the BBC. And most people would tune in thinking they were going to watch Palace get hammered 9-0. And um, we had our best player who had a broken leg. Right, he was sitting on the side. So we played the 4-5-1. I think we went man-to-man at the back with one spare. And I played up front on my own. Managed to pull off the, the, one of the greatest games I've been involved in. Um, because it'd be like beating Liverpool now in the semi-final like Palace beating Liverpool now would be a greater achievement but they were so good then with the, with the players they had that um, yeah it was just a unique experience we kicked off first at 12 o'clock and then I think Man United and Oldham in the afternoon but I mean we just celebrated like we'd won it you know you've got one game to go and it's very difficult not to over-celebrate considering the task what we had in front of us beating the best team in the league they won the league that year. I think that was the last time they won the league, so... Well, let's see what Palace can do about it now in the second half as they attack the whole end here at Villa Park. John Pemberton, a lovely run early on. And a chance for Barber and Venison. And it's a shot. And it's there by Bright. It's Mark Bright straight from the kickoff. After John Salako's shot didn't quite get there, Bright certainly did. And Palace are level. What a dramatic start to the second half. Well, unfortunately, after the pulsating 3-3 draw in the first final against Manchester United, you lost the replay 1-0. And three years later, you got not one, but two shots at Wembley final success when you were playing for Sheffield Wednesday. Uh, Standing in your your way on both occasions um, were Arsenal and a certain Ian Wright. Uh, And you came short in both. Um, Of all those three finals, which one was the most disappointing loss? The first one, the first mm. one, because Manchester United weren't the Manchester United of today because Sir Alex Ferguson was just in there. He'd been in three three or four years. He was looking to secure his first trophy and we were winning. And we were winning. So, you know, what did we have? Seven minutes to hang on, something like that. Then Mark Hughes scored. Um, and then extra time and then we replay, which obviously wouldn't be a replay these days. Um, so I think because we beat Liverpool, who were the best team in the league, we there's a certain thing that goes around that says your name's on the cup. And it's kind of like one of those folklore things. And you do start to believe your name's on the cup. And so I think that was the greatest disappointment. That, that was quite hard to get over that, really was. Mm. Um, the other, I just didn't think anyone could get to three finals and lose all three. That was my other theory. I've got to win one of these. If it's the if it's a league cup, I'll accept it. I just want to win a trophy. Um, but you have visions of the pre, of the uh, the FA Cup because you have to be in a special team that can win the league, but you can be in a lucky team that could win a cup. So um, I really desire my 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 thing was really as a young person to dance around Wembley with the FA Cup. That's what I've seen. That's what I can feel and touch. The Champions League or the European Cup, as it was called then, was for the elite, the top clubs. Because remember, in the old days, only the league winners went into that tournament. So I always felt that something was achievable was the FA Cup. So to have two cracks at it, both go to replays and not to win, it's disappointing. Well, you had good times then at Sheffield Wednesday and and Charlton Athletic um, before hanging your boots up. Uh, And we know that after 
after playing. You've worked a lot of work as a pundit and co-commentator for the BBC and many others. Um, and I believe you're now back at Crystal Palace as an ambassador. Um, what exactly does that role entail? Because we often see you in the director's box at Sel Selhurst Park. Yeah, I, I'm the loans manager. And the official title is the director of under-23 development. So um, basically look after the players who go out on loan. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, one year you've got 10, the next year you've got five, the next year you've got four. So there's, there's four out this year and um, you go and watch them, give them feedback. You're trying to make them better, either better to come back and play in our team or to get a career after, after, you, after your contract expires with us. Um, it's not easy. It's the toughest. It really is the toughest. Um, I think the hardest job acting and, and football where the disappointment is greater than any, any other industry because 0.1% of the elite guys are going to get through. So when you see a football team and you see everybody playing, one might get a career. You know, so these are kids we take in at eight and release at 18 if they're not good enough. It's a 10 year journey and it's not easy. Um, so I'm part of that process and trying to help and improve people, talk to them, watch their clips with them, watch the videos, um, go and watch them and support them, lift them when they get down, when they do really well, try not to let them get above the cells, you know, just time to stay focused. Don't get carried away. As you know, in football, you just have to wait. Mm. You just have to wait because there's something bad's going to happen to everybody if you wait long enough. Yeah. So, yeah, I enjoy it. Yeah, I travel with the chairman every every game, home and away. Um, we've experienced some massive ups and downs um, in that time since he's bought the club. Um, so, yeah, I'm grateful. I, I, I'm involved with the club. Obviously, it's a club that I owe a lot to and I feel I'm giving back. Um, and what you try and tell the kids is, you know, this there's something magical about playing professional football. Um, I just... If you watch the, the the Netflix series, you know the Last Dance involving the, the Chicago Bulls with Michael Jordan. I think that tells you everything you need to know about being an individual and a, and a team player. That should that should show you what it takes to be the best. I can't think of a finer example of a documentary which you could tell a kid of any era to watch. You don't need to know who Michael Jordan is. You just need to watch the documentary, and. You've got to dedicate yourself to football. You've got to leave no stone unturned. You've got to come in every day and work like it's your last day. You've got to watch football. You've got to study the person who plays in your position. You've got to be in love with the game. I found that the people who've been successful are the people who love the game. And I don't think they love it enough. They love the idea of, of being a footballer, of driving the nice car, of living in the big house, wearing the nice clothes, wearing the nice watch. That's what they fall in love with. I, we fell in love of just playing football my era so it's a little bit different you have to adapt um there's a social media era now and we're all on it we're all on it we all take part in it and it changes things it's a game change and it's different um so in the old days we used to get abuse on the pitch now they get abuse on social media we're giving you the keys to our time machine so you can jump back to the 1980s and give yourself one piece of advice, similar to what you've just said, how you're dishing it out these days to the, to the young lads who are coming af uh, after you uh, and trying to make it as a professional footballer. But you're speaking specifically to Mark Bright from 1989 or whatever uh, and saying, listen, this is what you have to do. What would it be? There's a couple of things. Joe DiMaggio, 
was I think I read Joe DiMaggio, the baseball player, that um, he played like it was his last game, every game he played. And somebody asked him, why, why do you play so hard every game? And he said, do you know what? A young kid might be coming to watch me for the first time. I wrote that on like a post-it note and I stuck it on my shower, I think. And um, I think I shared that with Wrighty that if someone comes to watch us play, let's make sure they walk away and say, they're good. Even though we beat them or whatever the score, they walk away and say, those two who play up front for Palace are really good. Leave an impression. So work hard. That's, I think, the, the best bit of advice I got. There's a goalkeeper called Barry Siddle. He was at Port Vale when I started. And Barry used to live at Blackpool. And we played Blackpool one night in the reserves. And because he was, he was local, he went and watched. He came in the changing room afterwards. And he sat next to me and he said, you know what, Brian, well done. You don't know sitting in that stand watching you ever. Mm. I went up there today and I sat next to people. We're watching you. And everyone said how well you worked and chased and ran and gave your best. And he said, my one piece of advice to you is you never know who's in the stand, Brian. Give your best every game. And he was absolutely 100% right. Because somebody in that stand can influence your career. And you don't know who it might be. It might be really old guy who does a bit of scouting for a club now and again who phones the manager the next day and says I went to watch Port Vale Reserves last night there was a player playing up front named Mark Bright he's 18 or 19 keep your eye on him and that might start the snowball effect of other people coming to watch you but you've got to give your best every game every day football it might end for you two weeks time you might have a, 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 being involved in a tackle or land awkwardly might result in you retiring so don't have any regrets I don't have any regrets whatsoever I was the best I could have been and I say that with my hand on my heart I don't I don't think I could have been any better I worked hard I never drank during the season for seven years um, dedicated myself went to watch better players studied myself took the videos home analyzed myself had stats done every game of how many headers I won how many shots I had how many good passes I did I knew where I was in my career. Well, Mark, that's a great way to end the podcast. It's been absolutely fabulous to talk to you today. Uh, I appreciate you sharing your memories and your time with us. Thank you very much. I hope you've enjoyed this little look back at these old interviews. Great. It's, um, you do things and you don't think in 20 years' time or 30 years' time, someone's going to call you up and say, <laughs> I'm going to take you to task on that interview you did 20, 30 years ago. <laughs> Let's see if yeah. your answers are still the same. Indeed, yeah. So, no, all the young, yeah, keep an eye. Make sure you mention it to all the young yeah. lads, just to be careful what they say in these uh, in these interviews nowadays. Exactly. All right, great, Mark. Okay, um, thanks again. Take care. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to What Happened to You. You can find us across all the main podcast platforms, so please don't forget to subscribe. For updates about future guests and new episodes, follow us on Twitter at WHTYPod. For extra content related to what happened to you, including the original interviews that inspired this episode, visit our friends The Set Pieces at www.thesetpieces.com and follow them on Twitter at The Set Pieces. We'll be back again soon, so until next time, goodbye.